Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March the 16th, 2017. What does that mean? It means tomorrow people will be wearing green and drinking green beer. No, no, no. It means it's time for the list. Well, it does mean that. But it, it means it's time for the listener call show. This is where you pick up your phone and you dial 866-65-THINK. Or you get over to the Survival Podcast. You use the speak pipe. You leave a message there. You, uh, you make your call and you tell me, Jack, my question is, or Jack, my point is, in like one sentence. And then you give me the details and you're more likely to get through the screening process. You do it from a quiet location. If you're on a cell phone, you make sure you have at least two bars before you make the call because there'll be no one to say, dude, you sound like like that, right? So make sure you got some bars on that cell phone because it's just a recording. It'll come to me. I'll screen it for the show. And by the way, if you want to get on a show soon, make your call. Now, next week, I'm doing the workshop here. So there won't be a call next week. But right now, I'm actually working some backlog calls that didn't get through the first time. SpeakPipe is empty. So if you get your call in this week or next week, you'll probably be on the following Friday's show. Before we get to all that, let's go ahead and tell you what we're going to be talking about today and uh, who called in and what they want to know about. Uh, today we are going to talk about, the first we're going to make it sound like this is a Bitcoin show, but I, I, I kid you not, these three calls were in order like right one behind the other from three different people. Thoughts on the stock market and Bitcoin investing versus the stock market. Tax implications of selling cryptocurrency and choosing a good hard key for cryptocurrency. Those are the first three. Yeah, I, it, I use what comes in, guys, I'm telling you. Uh, then, moving on to other topics. Dealing with soil that won't take or hold water. Why I'm not a fan of shipping containers for underground homes, and generally not a fan of shipping containers for homes to begin with. Uh, the answer to, I don't need to prep. Guns are all I need, and I will take what I want. Most of you understand that that's stupid. Today we'll talk about how you tell the person saying it, how stupid they are, and uh, not so your stupid way, but maybe a little bit of a you're a dumbass way. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, a report on the Polish NATO cans... From Ohio Prep, a good report, and then bad news about it, and catching invasive doves and pigeons to put on your grill, since there's no limit on them. How can we do that? I happen to be one of the best people in the world you could ask that question to, because I see a lot of the pigeon traps that are out there. The caller's using one. He's not catching birds. Um, they work okay, but I know. I am the guy when it comes to catching pigeons. Why? Because my uncle, Pete was stitching, okay? This guy, we used to call him meat to pee, like meat, like meat that you eat, because this guy was, I'll tell you about it when we get to it, but he was a pigeon keeper, among other things, and I know the best pigeon trap you can make, and it's simple, and it's easy, and Pete is the only guy I've ever seen make them this way, well, and me. We'll tell you about that is our closing story for today. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a favorite knife, a special knife, one you may hand down to a son or a daughter? How cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself? With KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at KnifeKits.com. Hey guys, if you're like me, you want the best quality water for yourself and your family, this is why I've used a Berkey water filter for over six years in my own home. 
But if you're going to get a Berkey or parts for one you already have, you should deal with the best. And that's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. There's only one official Berkey Guy, and you can only find him at his website at directive21.com. Again, directive, the number is 21and.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. We have uh, three for you today, two from Alex Shrugged and one from Southpaw Ben. I have the assassination of Reverend Martin Luther King. I have this year in space from Southpaw Ben. And I have more control over guns. Yeah, that will fix it. Notable births. Timothy McVeigh, executed in 2001, age 33, by lethal injection for blowing up the Murrow Federal Building in Oklahoma. So there's a lot of conspiracy stuff that starts or is this year, okay? We know the conspiracy. I think the Murrow Federal Building bombing, there's some weird, weird shit around that one. Um, I'll tell you the weirdest thing. The cop that was investigating this with a doctor was found um, with his hands tied behind his back, shot through the head, uh, shot multiple times, uh, a distance from his cruiser, and his death was ruled a suicide. And the doctor he was working with had an accidental plane crash like a couple weeks before or after. I don't remember which one. Yeah, there's something there. Okay. Ramsey Youssef, mastermind of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. And there's the conspiracy theory that uh, the FBI gave him the explosives. Uh, Muhammad Atta was born this year. What the hell? 1968, what are you doing to us? Hijacker who crashed the 767 in North Tower in World Trade Center. We all know there's lots of 9-11 conspiracy theories. Let's get off that for a minute. From Star Trek Voyager born this year, Ensign Harry Kim. Uh, Garrett Wang, and Seven of Nine, uh, Jerry Ryan, who was divorced from Jack Ryan, favorite to run against Barack Obama for the state Senate. Barack is a Borg, says Alex Schrock. We have another conspiracy now. Okay. Uh, in music, Celine Dion, who I, I can't stand looking at when she's singing. It's unbelievably aw- just ugh. Uh, Kenny Chesney and LL Cool J born this year. In movies, Will Smith, Cuba Gooden Jr., and Hugh Jackman, Wolverine's X-Men. This year in film, 2001, A Space Odyssey. It's long, weird, and amazing. Like 2010 better, uh, Alex Shrug says. Funny girl, Barbara Streisand has a voice like a bell, but her politics leave me flat. Yeah, me too. Planet of the Apes is released this year. And Charlie from the short story Flowers for Almagon. Rated X, meaning mature subject, no sex, no nudity, worth seeing, definitely worth reading. Alex Shrugged. This year in TV, Star Trek's Captain Kirk kisses Lieutenant Uhura. That's the first black and white kiss on TV. Eleven cartoons are censored. Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies withdraw eleven racially insensitive cartoons from TV syndication. They really are insensitive, old brother. Uh, the Raiders and Jets game goes long, so it's preempted by the movie Heidi. TVs fly out the windows when the news banner reports a last-minute touchdown. <laughs> the year in music. Hey, Jude from the Beatles. Jumbo Jack Flash from the Rolling Stones. Sitting on the dock of the bay with Otis Redding. And what a wonderful life from uh, Louis Armstrong. Okay, I thought about this because we got two other conspiracy-related things here, whether people realize it or not. Um, we have the assassination of Martin Luther King and the year in space. I'm not going to read the year in space, so I'm going to tell you the 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 the, the mollifying component to a, a, a conspiracy theory in the year in space. Southpaw Ben talks about the the Zod five uh, spacecraft that went to the circled the moon and came back that had some animals in it like tortoises and stuff like that. Well, there's a conspiracy theory that we never went to the moon. And uh, it's because there's this radiation belt that you would never survive passing through, but the the Soviets brought back their their turtle, okay, and 
It's supposedly the Soviets who said you couldn't survive the radiation belt. So that mollifies it. So let's talk about another one with a conspiracy theory attached to it. The assassination of Reverend Martin Luther King. Quote, there is no way in the world you can keep somebody from killing you if they really want to kill you. End quote. Martin Luther King, 1968, when asked why he has no bodyguard. Um, I think there's a lesson there. One, he's right. Two, get a bodyguard if you, if you, because yeah, I mean, it might prevent that one person from getting it done the first time, especially if they don't know the, just saying. Okay. The mayor of Memphis refuses to recognize the new union of sanitation workers, garbage men, and their grievances. Normally, this is strictly a workman's issue, but when the workday is canceled due to weather and the white workers are paid for a full day, black workers are paid their hours worked, they strike. I don't blame them. And Reverend King comes to Memphis to support. He stays at his normal motel room, 306, as he always does. He gives that famous speech, I have been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. His eyes are distant as, he, as if he sees a vision of his own passing and it's coming soon. As he stands on the balcony of room 306 enjoying the evening, a single bullet from a Remington 306 hits him in the jaw. The bullet travels down his spine. He dies in surgery an hour later. The impact on the black community is devastating. Rioters fill the streets in a hundred cities. We are all going to die anyway. Take it down. Take it all down. FYI, Alex Shrugged is not advocating violence, but conveying the feeling of the times. My take by Alex Shrugged. James L. Ray ran out of the boarding house from across the street. He was a petty criminal, yet he was apprehended overseas on his way to Rhodesia carrying a fake passport. The FBI had a weapon with his fingerprints on it, but could not prove that it was the weapon that fired the bullet. Ray pled guilty, but three days later retracted the plea. No dice. Ray died in prison at the age of 70, all while maintaining he did not kill King. Reverend King's family believes him. Conspiracy theorists point to the FBI. This is not as ridiculous as it sounds. Years before, the FBI had sent an anonymous letter to Reverend King suggesting that in threatening terms, he should kill himself before they released evidence of his evil ways. Today we admire Reverend King, certainly I do, but every man has his faults and every woman knows it. His wife forgave him. In the aftermath of his assassination, he is elevated a little higher than he probably deserves, but no harm done. We can use a few heroes, indeed. If, if there's a guy that you can forgive some of the overhype, I think it's, it's Martin Luther King. What strikes me about the assassination, though, is the fact that you got this guy that's a petty criminal, right? I mean, this guy is, he's not a choir boy, right? But he, this guy's never, he's never accomplished anything either good or as a criminal of any level. This is not like some high, high level guy. How, how does this guy end up on his way to Rhodesia with a phony passport? Now, Understand that certainly creating false identification in 1968 was a little easier done in some ways than it is in 2017. Now, on some levels that's true because there's more fraud protection. On other levels, there's more technology to do it with today. But Rhodesia, Rhodesia, J James Earl Ray shoots Martin Luther King in the face Bullet goes down his spine and runs to Rhodesia with a phony passport. And the story that the FBI sent him a letter that said, you better kill yourself before we release all this evil, you know, we'll ruin you. You're better off dead. 
And that came from the FBI. That's, that's true. That's verified. Um, this is one of those ones I think that our government in some way had. Now, was it the FBI? I don't know. It's easy to point the finger at them, but it seems to me like this is more the type of thing that someone like the CIA does when they're not supposed to be operating in America, yet they operate in America. Um, there was a real concern that this civil rights movement was very much linked to communism, and there's some truth to that and some not truth to that. Uh, and remember, we're at a precipice of nuclear war here. Um, states do horrible things to preserve their power. I'll just say that. And killing a man, killing a single person who is perceived to be a threat to the state is not beyond what our government's done. We've killed a hell of a lot more than one. And yeah, 1968 just seems like it's got conspiracy crap coming out of it, like oozing out of it. Weird. My take by Jack Spierko. All right, folks, I want to remind you about the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade today. That's a great way that you can support the show and get a return of investment. We offer discounts to over 60 vendors. There's a lot of video content that you can't get anywhere else. We do video all of our workshops from this point going forward. There's hours of video on our workshops in there for MSB members only, and yes, you can download them. Every episode of the Survival Podcast ever produced in convenient zip files, so you can start with episode one and binge out all the way up to episode 2000 and beyond very, very soon. That's all available, and it's all available for a cost that comes down to 18.3 episodes per day, $50 a year. And you can try the membership out for as little as $5 a month. If you have not yet become a member, please consider supporting the show as a Support Brigade member today. And with that, let's take your uh, first call of the day, this one on the stock market and Bitcoin investing. Hey, Jack. I was just wondering generally right now what your feelings are about the stock market and investing and your kind of current strategy, if you have one, as far as what you're doing with your own money. And also, any thoughts you might have on Bitcoin? It's definitely reached some historic highs lately, as has Ethereum. Um, I'm just wondering how you think about the money that you have stored in cryptocurrency. If you think about it as a as a savings and as an as an investment or as a currency, or how you feel about it. I imagine you probably bought some Bitcoins and Ethereum when they were a lot cheaper than they are now. Is it exciting to have that grow? And uh, do you see that as a form of savings that you have? I'm just interested. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. There, there's actually quite a few questions in there. Um, here's how I feel about stock markets. When they're at all-time highs, they're at the greatest risk of major corrections. And if you've noticed, Dow over 20,000, we're there. That said... I don't see any major landmines that will explode in the next 90 to 180 days. Um, we all know the student loan bubble is going to be a problem, but it doesn't look like it's going to be a problem in the next half of the year. Well, that's probably our next really big uh, kind of bailout situation. Uh, new home construction is going well. Um, the real estate market is doing very well. It has probably not been doing very well long enough to run into the problems that we had in 2008 yet. So overall, I'm semi-bullish on the market with this caveat. First of all, I am not a financial advisor. I don't even pretend to be one on TV. 
Uh, and I'm not giving you specific advice. All I can tell you is what I'm doing. Uh, I have a good financial advisor. I can't tell you who because as a public personality, I can't endorse a financial advisor because your government doesn't think it's right. Okay, so But I have a good financial advisor, and together uh, we are in still some cash stronghold position and in individual stocks and investments that we know specific reasons why we've chosen them. My money has not been in mutual funds since, oh, early 2008 when I screamed, get out, get out, get out, get out, and I did too, okay? Um, it's either been in cash or it's been in individual investments or ETFs and things like that. So my personal view of the stock market right now is there's money to be made. You must use caution. You should be selecting individual investments with very specific rationale and reason behind them. And I can't give you a list of things to invest in or something like that because there's some things that I'm in positions in now that we went into those positions three months ago. Okay, or two months ago, and the, the I, I I can't tell you what to invest in, and I won't. But that's my overall view of the market. Probably no major crash, possibly significant cor correction, lots of volatility. Uh, you're seeing volatility today because will they or won't they raise the rate? You know the 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 the, the federal interest rate. And if they do, they're going to raise it like a fraction of a point. It's still going to be under 1%. And it's for the market to react negatively to that shows you how bipolar it is right now. Because what we're talking about is the rate for the federal funds rate. So when the, the banks want to borrow money overnight or from the Fed, the rate they pay, the interbank lending rate. Let me explain something to you about that rate. It is used like an accelerator and a brake by the Fed to kind of control the economy. When the economy starts really heating up, they'll raise those rates and in interest rates correspondingly on investments uh, that are interest rate based like bonds will, will go up. And what that will do is you'll have an opportunity, let's say, to make 6% on a bond that's a guaranteed bond uh, on, on a five-year bond. And a lot of people will say, well, shit, I've done really well in this market because it usually corresponds with the market doing well. I'll take some of the profits and I'll drop over into this bond and I'll make a guaranteed 6% for the next five years or whatever it is. Or shit, if the bank's paying 5% interest, I'm just going to go to a cash position right now and look for other opportunities and wait because I'm making 5% return. Those are reasonable interest rates. Those aren't, you know, the 1981, 1979%, 18% on a mortgage rates. You know, with interest rates around there, you're looking at, you know, mortgage interest rates of like 7.5%, which seems high to us now because we've been blinded by 10 years of nonsense. But, I mean, that was forever and a day was considered a fantastic interest rate on a mortgage. All right? So what the Fed does is when the economy seems to be getting too hot and might go into too much inflation and grow too fast and cause problems, they raise the interest rate. When the economy is slowing down, they drop it and they do the exact opposite with money. They, they, they choke off investment to where I can only make 2.5% in the bank. I got to go into equities. I got to go into stocks. I got to go, I got to put my, some, my money somewhere. So it, it spurs investment. When you go to almost zero, which is where we've been for quite a while, when you come up a point even, it's inconsequential to the long term. It's actually a positive signal that the economy's doing better. But it's certainly not putting the brakes on it, and yet the market has this swift negative reaction. That's the volatility you're playing with here. 
So be careful. Choose your investments wisely. Have a good advisor if you can find one. And, and, and don't just tie yourself to an index fund right now. Because sooner or later, this is going to correct. And, and I, I think it's later. It could be sooner. And by being in resilient investments that don't knee-jerk with the indexes, you have a lot more stability. That's my thoughts on that. Now, Bitcoin and Ethereum, etc. I don't know what the hell happened to Ethereum, but it like jumped, like doubled overnight. Uh, and it's done really well up until this point. To give you an idea of how well Ethereum is done, about seven months ago, I decided to buy some Ethereum. I bought about $1,100 worth of Ethereum. And that $1,100 spent on Ethereum today is worth $3,917. Now, like I said, if when I look at the Ethereum dashboard, um, it, 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 the, the price of it, the, there's this huge jump. Just like in the last two days, it went from about you know 16, 18 bucks up to like almost 40, and, and that's a huge, huge jump. If I was sitting on you know a hundred thousand Ethereum or something like that. I, 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 I might take some of that profit right now, but with, you know, a, a relatively small investment, I'll, I'll just leave it there. And I'll tell you the same is true for the Bitcoin that I'm holding right now. Um, but even before that big jump, my, my investment had almost doubled anyway before the big jump. And I, I think there's some things going on that people are having a hard time getting their head around. And one is that Ethereum is driving a lot of these barter networks and things like that. And many, many years ago, I started postulating the concept of virtual nations. And it seems like that is being spun off into a lot of different things, not just virtual nations, but sharing economies and marketplaces and stuff like that. And I really don't have a full grasp on Ethereum yet. But it seems like what they're doing with the Ethereum blockchain is if you want to, if I want to create Spearco coin, I can and it's it's somehow tied to Ethereum and Ethereum is part of the network itself. And this ties into yesterday we had an interview with uh my good buddy Vin Armani, and he was talking about something called Swarm City, which came out of Arcade City. And it's a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer sharing a cable uh, economy enabled by the SWT token running on the Ethereum blockchain. So that's an example of somebody doing that. And what Swarm City, from what I can see, and it's weird, the site is swarm.city, but when I go there, the page won't load. But if you go to the Swarm City Times, which is like their blog, you can, you can see that. And the best way to find that, I'll put a link in the show notes, but it would just be Google Swarm City, and you'll see like a breakout, and instead of clicking on the main one, click on Swarm City Times. And I've done a little bit of research on this so far, and it seems like that's what exactly what they're doing. And what they're doing is basically an app where whatever you want done, like let's say you need somebody to do roofing, you just, in the app, you're going to, and they're not, the app's not ready yet, you put in hashtag roof, roofing, and then people make you offers. And the, the business is all done on their platform with SWT tokens. And you start to get into that gray area because you're in a totally different world now. You're not using Coinbase like I do for Bitcoin and Ethereum where there's a lot of reporting to the government and stuff like that. And there's all different types of wallets and all different types of way stuff can be moving around where it's like digital cash. You got me? But it's empowered by Ethereum. And I think that there are a lot of other people working on things 
and I, I need to take like a week and just immerse myself into cryptocurrency at, at a higher level so that I can learn more about this and, and, and see how this stuff actually is done. But how do I view Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, personally? Well, I view Bitcoin and Ethereum as long-term whole investments right now because I believe they're the future and the, the, the dollar economy is the past. And there's a transition going on right now. It doesn't mean I'm putting all my cash into Bitcoin, and I'm not suggesting you do by any means. Um, you, you, you would probably be surprised to know that I don't have anywhere near as much Bitcoin as most people would think. Uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum all in, uh, I have about 12,000 bucks worth. I'll, I'll publicly acknowledge that. Um, and I don't have to pay any taxes on any of it because I haven't sold any of it this year, and we'll hold on that to the next question. Um, and in fact, it would be a good time to go ahead and take the next question because the next question is on capital gains and result of transactions with Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc. So let's listen to that, and I'll, I'll continue this segment after we hear this next call. Hey, Jack. Question. Do you pay taxes on gains made uh, with cryptocurrencies? Details. Ether, the cryptocurrency on the Ethereum network, has gained value in one year of uh, 200% uh, today. And I am curious, if I was to sell, would I pay taxes on the 200% gain of my money in a, you know, currency trading? Uh, you know. It's uh, not financial advice, just what would happen if I was to do that. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to explain this as I understand it with a caveat that everything I say could be wrong, but most of it probably is right, okay? So number one, I guarantee you the answer to this one. If you sell your Ethereum today, will you pay tax on it? Well, if you don't want to end up in trouble with the IRS... And if it's done in such a way that the IRS would have visibility into it, then absolutely yes. And by tax code, you should. And this is where I'm getting to. I believe this to be the case. It would fall under the same capital gains taxation rules of short and long-term capital gains based on how long you held the investment. I'm not 100% sure of that, but if you have a capital gain from a stock that you bought in January and sold in February, you pay a higher tax on that gain than a stock that you bought in January of 2000 and sold, let's say, uh, in January this year and held for that, you know, 17 years. And I think it's around five years, but I'm not sure. This is why I have an accountant to go through all my stuff with me every year and make sure that we maximize the, you know, our deductions and we only pay what we have to pay. Right. So I don't, I don't plan to be a tax expert. That's why there are people called CPAs and that's the people that I use to do this. Okay. So my understanding from the tax guidance from the, from the IRS is that Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dogecoin, etc., all of it is considered basically a commodity. It's like buying any commodity and selling any commodity for a profit. Here's where it gets weird. My understanding of the tax guidance is, let's say I receive a Bitcoin into my Bitcoin account today, and it's, I don't know, 1100 1200 bucks, whatever it's valued at. And that tomorrow, Bitcoin jumps up to like $1,400. Instead of selling it, I spend it. I think, according to IRS tax guidance, that that is supposed to be reported as a sale, even though it's not, which is 
different than treating it as a foreign currency. Because if I purchase foreign currency, and then the, the, the exchange rate shifts in my favor, and I spend it, I don't think I pay tax on that. Only if I, if I sell it effectively back to dollars that I actually pay tax on it. If I spend it, let's say, let's say I invest in, uh, in Canadian dollars, And the Canadian, just not as a, as a like forex exchange or something like that. I just simply put some money into Canadian dollars. I effectively buy it. And um, then I spend Canadian dollars with a Canadian vendor. But in the interim, the Canadian dollar strengthens by 20% against the U.S. dollar. And I've done well for myself with that. It's no different than if I go to Canada and purchase some Canadian dollars when I get there. And, and, and while I'm there for a couple of weeks, the Canadian dollar does really good, and I spend it in the Canadian economy, doesn't, it, 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 you see what I'm saying? So it's, it's a weird, they ain't quite figured it all out area yet. But you buy, you sell, you declare a basis, you pay a tax. Here's where it gets kind of weird. Which basis do you declare? How do you figure out what your basis is? Let's say that I have been holding Bitcoin for a long time, but I receive a Bitcoin today and I spend a Bitcoin tomorrow and the price is effectively not moved between the two. Do I create an average basis or do I say my basis is I got that particular Bitcoin yesterday and spent it today? One way you could cover your ass with this if you were ever audited, which someday this kind of shit's coming, um, would be whenever you receive uh, or whenever you buy Bitcoin, You put it into its own wallet or account within Coinbase, if you're using Coinbase. And then you know, it'll tell you what you paid for it. But obviously you can't be doing this with, like if you're doing business in Bitcoin, and people are sending you Bitcoin, you know, you, you can almost cherry pick whichever receipts you want as the ones that you spent. And I, I don't think the IRS is getting a lot of money from capital gains based on spent Bitcoin right now. I don't think most people are even doing it or even aware that they're supposed to. It's more the trading that's being taxed right now. Now, this is where we go gray-black, okay? I am a public personality. I have friends and I have enemies. I do everything 100% above board... Because I have to. Because I literally feel like there is a target on my back. And I'm not suggesting you should do anything nefarious. I'm just going to tell you what I know people are doing. There are other forms of wallets. I have no knowledge of them, really, as to how they work. But there are wallets that are completely independent of any kind of central network that are personal. It's very difficult to determine what the hell's going on with people using them, especially when they're using a lot of these secondary and tertiary tokens and coins, like maybe the, the, the Swarm City token, for instance. Okay? And they can be converted to Ethereum and then converted to Bitcoin or I don't even know. Okay? And they don't, if I don't know, they really don't know. And there's a lot of business going on that way that nobody's paying any tax on. And the odds that they're going to be able to track down anybody but the biggest kingpins in that are very, very low because they don't have the resources or the knowledge or the understanding to do it yet. But 
you know, the, the IRS will dig way back in your past. And I think the statute of limitations is pretty long on taxes. All right. I'm not really sure what it is. I think it's three years from the date a return is filed. They have three years to audit it. But I also think that there is, um, a lot of workarounds because they're the government and they do whatever they want. So you got to be careful if you're playing in that world. But I think what you're going to see is this whole economy develop where the money was never ever dollars. And when it was Bitcoin, it was Bitcoin for a very short period of time, and then it became Ethereum, and then it became some tertiary token. And then it's never being converted back unless somebody really has a need for it, and it's being exchanged back and forth, and it's going to be very difficult to tax. And I think that's where this whole marketplace is heading. But I have limitations on my knowledge. Now, we have another question on this, so I'll, I'll save the rest of my thought on this and for this next question, and then I'm going to ask the audience for some help here. What is the name of the hard key wallet that Chris Comey talked about on his interview? They never mentioned the name of hard key wallet where you put the key on your key ring. John from Kansas City, thank you very much. Okay, first of all, I want to I want to apologize for how crappy the sound of the interview that the caller's talking about with Chris was. There was a weird audio technical mess up on that interview that made Chris sound like he was in a tin can or something, and there were brief periods where it sounded clear. People said, "Well, do you listen to that? Do you can't you fix that?" And I, I can't fix it. And I can't take a guy from the UK who just spent an hour and a half on the phone with me and make him redo the interview. Especially when I don't know why I went bad. And, and the truth is, when I conducted that interview, he sounded perfect on my end, and the, the problems didn't show up to the recordings. I want to apologize for that. I also want to say that uh, his, 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 the answer to the caller's question, which hard key did Chris recommend, he didn't. He said, get one. He didn't recommend any specific one. Um, I've looked at a few. I, I don't really know how to choose one because I don't really know what I want to do with going forward with cryptocurrency. But just so the audience is aware, what a hard key is is basically you have a device. It could be like a, a USB drive or it could be a little box, lots of different ones. That basically all your Bitcoin is stored on there. And whenever you actually want to spend or receive Bitcoin, you hook it up to your computer or your device and you do your transaction and then you disconnect it. And it lives on that little box. Think of it like an external hard drive dedicated to nothing but Bitcoin transactions with extreme security. Now, the, the point of that is no one can steal, hack, audit, do anything with your Bitcoin across the Internet when that box is disconnected. Where if you're keeping it on a wallet on your hard drive of your computer, the entire time your computer's hooked up to the Internet, which is most of the time for everybody, even though there's a lot of security there, there's a potential for somebody to get into it. Uh, if you're doing business with Coinbase, which I recommend for you know all above board uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum transactions because it's so convenient, it works so well, it's so secure, uh, there is still potential for some sort of hacking. Though I think it's if you understand the security protocols of Coinbase, you 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 would call your bank and say, why don't you do this? Why don't you? And I won't go through it again because I've talked about it before. But there's I have money in what's called a vault in Coinbase, and getting that out, you gotta you gotta have my two email account accesses. You got to have my mobile device, right? And you have to know my password to get into Coinbase. 
Uh, and then uh, there's still going to take 48 hours for the money to get out of the vault. Uh, and I'm going to be notified multiple times by all means of communication that, that do you really want to do this? And I have up to 48 hours to find out and cancel it. I, you know, I wonder why banks don't have the type of thing with your credit card the way that PayPal does. If I go out and use my PayPal debit card or use it as a credit card, instantly I get an alert on my phone that, that there was a transaction. Well, if you had that with your bank debit card or your credit card, then anytime somebody you know did a fraudulent transaction, you would know the immediate moment that it happened. And, and I don't know why. I mean, personally, this is how I think it should work. Your, your credit card should be linked to a, an app on your phone. At least you should have this as an option. And basically, the default setting to that is, is off. Do not accept credit card transactions. Except for, you know, let's say you, you have a, uh, a web hosting account and they charge your credit card and you use credit card in business because that makes your tax is easy and everything. Uh, right? So you have your, your Visa card set up so that it will pay HostGator $12 a month. Well, you've set that in your app as a pre-approved transaction. If you see this transaction, you just so that way your automatic charges don't get disrupted. But all other new charges, it doesn't work. And you open your app when you go to hand your credit card over or enter it on the screen, and you say, turn it on. You run your transaction, you turn it back off. You, you, you pretty much wipe out credit card fraud, but the banks won't do that. Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc. have protocols not exactly like that because they're not used that way yet, but they have this open source technology where all that kind of thing can be built into different wallets. That's why I think they're going to replace you know, bank accounts. But the concept of having this external key is basically ultimate security. My concern is if it's lost, and I guess my big thing would be I would want to be able to clone it some way, and I don't really understand if you can or you can't do that. So here's where we've reached my limitation. I don't know which external key to recommend to you, which hard key to recommend to you, and there's still a lot of things I don't know about Bitcoin. I've had several people, or I mean, cryptocurrency. I've had several people on. I've never felt like I've gotten a guest that can really explain to me, like, well, what wallet should I use? How do I use it? How is that different from using Coinbase? How do I buy all these other currencies instead of just Ethereum and, and, and Bitcoin? If you are the person that can answer questions like that, Please fill out my guest form and get on my show. I would like to bring in a true, real, hardcore expert on this stuff. And here's what I believe about experts. Experts make complicated things easy to understand. That's a, An expert is not someone that can talk a bunch of shit and sound smart, but then you still don't know what he said. An expert is someone you can take the complex and make it understandable by the average person. That that's what I'm looking for. If you're that person, please get on the air. Let's go to something different uh, here because it's been like the Bitcoin half hour here. Uh, let's talk about dealing with a gardening issue. Hi, Jack. This is Bryce from Iowa. Uh, I was calling in. I'm starting to plan my garden for this coming year. Uh, last year was my first attempt. Uh, we had a wide variety of uh, vegetables planted. Um, just seemed like no matter what we did, the ground was so dried out that even if we were to water it two, three times a day, um, we just couldn't get enough moisture in the ground for everything to grow. Um, I'm just looking for questions, so any input that uh, you or anyone else would have would be great. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to start out with I'm kind of feeling like Iowa ground won't hold water, baking dry, compacted clay. 
That's what I'm kind of feeling like compacted clay. Iowa has some great soils. Also has a lot of areas with a lot of clay. And clay is really good at holding on to water, but not if it's compacted because the water can't get in. The other possibility is you have a good loam that's also compacted and it's not, you know, it's good old Iowa soil, but it's not doing its job because it's compacted and the water can't infiltrate. So my first suggestion is going to be to do something I don't do a lot of, but certainly an establishment I'm okay with, till, double dig, loosen the soil, something like that, okay? If you want to shortcut this all, you could go to raised beds with a prepared soil mix, but... In the end, I think that if you can grow in the ground, grow in the ground. You're better off. You have less loss of water, etc. The deeper you go, the generally the wetter it gets. Another rule, when in doubt, mulch. And when in doubt, mulch more. It, 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 it sounds like you got bare dirt to me, but see, you didn't tell me what you did. So I don't know what you did. So if you, you'll be like, I mulched. Well, maybe you did. I don't know because you didn't let me know. But, I mean, I would go with a good deep layer of wood mulch. I'm talking two to four inches thick. Uh, and before I did that, I would decompact the soil, and I would probably, in your situation, as bad as you said it was, till in some organic matter. That does not mean till in wood chips. Wood chips are mulch. They don't get tilt. Okay? Um, peat moss, compost, lighteners, like that. Another thing you could look at tilling in your soil would be some lava sand. Uh, another thing you could till in your soil is some expanded shale. All of those are pretty awesome things that you can look at using uh, in your systems uh, to help loosen the soil. But mulch alone will do wonders. Now, here's the thing. Um, had you called me in the fall, I would have just said sheet mulch the shit out of it, and by this spring you'd have beautiful soil. Now you're coming back around to this time again, and you're starting from scratch, but now you're in the spring, and you'll be planting soon. So you do your best you can with your mulching. The other thing I'm going to say is it sounds like we have decided that the best thing to do is have our garden in a place in full sun all day long because this would be gardens need sun. You might want to look at if it's feasible. I don't know what it is. I don't know how much effort you have into this. Is there a location on your property that receives full sun from the early morning hours up until mid-afternoon and then gets shaded? Eastern sun is the bomb. East, especially if you have like a dappled shade that increases to a full shade by the end of the day, especially with your long ass days up there. Uh, if you do all those things, you'll probably be a lot better off. If you don't have a way to move it or make that happen, you might consider purchasing some, some plantings, uh, that will grow fast in, in, in infertile soils that will create a shade late in the afternoon and you know, planting that on the west side of your garden. Create a shadow map for yourself. If there's nothing there making shade, uh, put some big object in there and draw a shadow map from it so that you can understand if something shaped like this will cast a shadow like X and then figure out what to plant, how high it needs to be, and do some plantings. Another thing you might want to do is some low windrow plantings around your garden because you get a lot of wind. And it's not just sun that causes soil to dry out. Wind is a huge thing. So if we can block some of the wind with the low plantings that don't block the sun, that can help us reduce evaporation as well. I would actually say this is a great call for follow-up, dude. If you would, if you would call back in and, and tell me what you did, then I can add to these recommendations. 
But without knowing what you did, how many hours of sun it's getting, what is your soil type like, what do you mean by it didn't work? Do you mean the plants all died or they just didn't produce well? They produced, but it was lackluster. Uh, you had a lot of pest problems because they were dried out. What do you mean by watering several times a day? How were you watering? I mean, these are the details I need to kind of guide you forward. My, my suggestion for like how it probably would work no matter what the answer to those are, good working of the soil, at least in the first season, good layer of mulch, drip irrigation on timers, good fertility regime, stay tuned for item of the day to learn about that, and most of your problems will go away. Compost in the soil and on top of the soil, and then a mulch layer of wood on top of that, drip irrigation, I mean, you're going to have a hard time failing, unless something's wrong with the place, right? Unless there's something really, really wrong. If you're going to tell me that like it's bare dirt and it's hard, then we got to fix that before we do all those other things. And if that's the case, then, you know, do you have grass growing around it? Or is this an open bare patch of dirt that you stuck a guard into? Things like that I need to know. And, you know, if you do have grass, what does it look like by the time of the year? The garden's dry, but the grass is healthy, then we're doing something wrong. And give me that information, I'll try to work it out uh, better for you. But in the end, when in doubt, organic matter, mulch, compost. That's the number one thing you can do always. Next question I have is about shipping containers for housing. And I'll tell you why they're not my favorite by a long shot. Hey, Jack, it's Sam in uh, New Hampshire. I had a question about uh, burying a Connex box for maybe like a hunting camp. Um, I've got 150 acres up here, and uh, I was thinking about building, you know, a hunting camp, but um, I'm not sure if I want to build it out of logs or if I'd be better off, you know, just buying a Connex box because they're pretty cheap and kind of setting it into a hill and uh, setting it up like that. Um Love to hear your thoughts on it. Thanks a lot. All right, bye. Okay, I'm going to start out with if I had unlimited budget and could do anything I wanted to do, I would probably never build a single shipping container house. Here's why. Everybody that I've talked to that has done it and done it successfully says, I'm very happy with what I have. I would never do it again. In the end, it cost more than I expected. It was more work than I expected. It took more effort than I expected. And I don't really have anything that's that much better than if I had used a different construction method. I think there is something to shipping container construction by companies that are systemizing it um, to the Lego block level. Everything is a known preconceived designs stacking together like Lincoln Logs in a factory assembly model with specialized workers. I think there's a future in that to a degree, and I think that's a good thing. I think as a DIY, it's, 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 it's discussed as being much easier than it is. If I was going to do it, I think I would go along more with like, okay, let's maximize something cool about this. Let's get four of them or six of them or eight of them and, and, and put them in some kind of a square configuration with a great big-ass courtyard opening so that you walk out of your house into this contained courtyard with shade and plant. And I think that it could be cool that way. Burying it, don't do it. Uh, I've seen one or two done that were done right, really done right, reinforced roofs and stuff like that. And you know what? They're awesome, and it could have been done underground with better construction choices for less money. 
in every instance that I've seen, including the best ones I've seen done. They have a real risk of collapse if it's not done exactly right if you bury them. They are not made to bear weight on the sides, on the back, or the center of the roof. They're made to bear weight on the corners. That's how they stack them five, six high on a ship. Um, they are metal. They will eventually rust. If I was going to build an underground structure, my go-to uh, choice would be concrete. This is a remote property. I can see the appeal of doing this. We, you know, we have a shelter. It's concealed. It's less likely to be ransacked and robbed. Um, I, I love the idea of underground structures, or at least partially underground structures that are blended in to not be very highly visible on remote properties because people suck and people steal shit. And unless you have a line of sight neighbor that's really going to keep an eye on your place, it's a matter of if not when somebody will find it and break into your shit. Um, my suggestion would be probably, though, to go with a more conventional construction cabin type or something like that. Uh, and if you want an underground component to it, then something like a poured foundation or cinder block foundation basement uh, with some sort of a backup sump pump arrangement in there so you don't get flooded uh, being the best way to go. And dropping a tough shit onto one of those is a, a pretty good way to go. Some of the tough shits, like we just had one put in. It's uh, 12 by 16. It's got a loft. It would make a nice little tiny house or uh, apartment. We had it installed for $3,300 or $3,800 or something like that. That was full all in. Like a guy showed up, put it together in a day, and walked away. And we could finish it out if we wanted to. to make. We're going to use it as a storage shed, but it could be finished out to a tiny house cabin. If we had put prefab put in, now there might have been some floor adjustment to this, but if we had prefab put in basically a center block walkout basement and it was sitting on top of that, you know, if we had done a steel, a steel top to that, uh, then it could have just been put in the way that they put it in. And you could actually make it where, yeah, the cabin is there, but all your shit's stored downstairs. It's very hard to see what's stored down in the basement. That would be another way of doing things. And if I was going to do anything remote like this, and I still kick around the idea of doing it, the, the, the way that I would try to do this is make the property as inaccessible to people with vehicles as possible. And I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. It's a pretty low-tech thing you can do. And that is, I had this buddy named Petey when I was a kid. He was a family friend, and I used to go hunting with him once in a while. And he had this Jeep, and he had this huge rut that he dug in with a backhoe, and he had a couple pieces of really heavy-duty oak plank hidden, and he would bring those out, set them down, and drive the Jeep over it. And when he left for the season, he would just hide them again. And, you know, there was no real good way in. Now, the problem is today everybody has a four-wheeler, everybody has a side-by-side, -side, and those things can go places that cars just can't and trucks just can't. But if you're not in a place where that kind of through four-wheeler traffic's going on all the time, you can make property pretty inaccessible and do what you can to hide the structure. So any road that people would just be driving by on a road or whatever, if they can see the structure, it, it's more likely to be screwed with. Or the other option is you make the property look occupied. You use lights and timers and stuff like that. I think those are more effective than trying to bury a shipping container in the ground. It can be done, but I think when you think, well, I can buy one of these for $4,500 delivered, and I'll just throw it in the ground... It, By the time you're done doing it right, you'll spend a lot more money than you would think you would spend. Or if you do it low tech, you're going to spend a, uh, you're going to take away a lot of the space that one of them has 
basically, if you frame the whole thing, timber frame the whole thing, and, and give up about six inches on both sides of the two by sixes, and give about six inches with headers up, yeah, and then you've shrunk it down to what seven seven feet uh, width. So, do you really want to do that? You, know, you want to weld two of them together? And I mean, you can do it, but I don't think it's cost effective. And again. Every per I had one guy on the show. He made a pretty neat uh, house out of one. It wasn't buried. Pretty neat house out of one for a remote location. I think it was two of them welded together. Came out pretty nice. Do you like it? Yeah. Do you love it? Yeah. Would you build one again that way? Nope. It's one of these things that sounds like a great idea until you actually do it. That's been my experience. If if you've built one, you think anybody could do it, it would be wonderful, and you've come up with a great way to bury them and whatever, and you've done it and not just talked about it. You want to be on the show and talk about it? Love to have you on, man. Fill out a guest form. Let's take another one. Jack, Josh here from Pennsylvania. Question. How do you address the mentality of those close to our communities that have the belief that I have enough guns and ammo, if a disaster hits, I'll just take what I need? Background. Over the past few years, I've had a handful of friends say don't crap like this to me. Even one friend recently saying, dude, I have enough firepower. If the shit hits the fan, I just come take all your stuff. I've never engaged in conversation in this type of foolish what-if scenarios. I've always chalked it up to their own macho response, to their own unpreparedness and laziness when faced with my gardens, animal production, and systems I've built for my family. My concern in addressing it is that it would turn into a schoolyard discussion of who could kick whose ass if the case arose. Some of these friendships I value greatly. In recent years, these are some of the guys I turn to for advice as a new hunter. What say you? Is this something you would address, and how? Is this a real security concern? In my situation, I wonder if my crunchy granola, gardening, composting, soap-making, and novice hunter persona has been viewed as a weakness. I choose to keep my vast home security measures private, and I rarely discuss my 12 years of light infantry experience. I preach to my kids that we don't discuss our security with anyone, ever. But rest assured, my 10-year-old could explain to you how interlocking fields of firework and how they're applied on our property. I'd love to get your feedback on this, Jack. Um, and on a separate note, my wife and I really enjoyed your spring or your fall workshop, and we're bummed that we can't make it back for the spring. But keep up the great work, and we hope to make it back soon. Thanks a lot. What, what I would actually try to point out to a person like this is, well, first of all, you're talking out of your ass. You're absolutely talking out of your ass because if you're the kind of person that when you need something and you don't have it, you just kill somebody and take it, why aren't you in prison yet? Or why aren't you out being a professional criminal right now? And then say nothing and wait for the response. Because you're going to get a long, dead silence when you tell them that. Because they're going to actually have to think about an answer now. Now that you can't throw bullshit out of their ass and talk like a man with a paper asshole. Because that's, that's what I would honestly say. My dad's old insult, right? You talk like a man with, you know what? You talk like a man with a paper asshole. It's a little softer way of doing what I did in the beginning, right? And, and then, you know, since I know you're not actually a man with a paper asshole, why aren't you, why aren't you out, you know, committing crimes for profit right now? Since you're such a badass and you're so able to just kill people to take what you want. You have no moral quandaries with that. And you're willing to kill the old lady down the street that used to, you know, babysit your kids to steal her food because that's what you're going to do if the shit is the fan. Why are you out doing the things that you say you would do then now on a lesser level? And then you'll probably hear some bullshit like this. Well, you know, you're talking about as the end of the world and the apocalypse. And well, okay, first of all, no, I'm not. But c please continue. 
Please continue to talk out of your ass. And, and then, you know, there'd be no consequences to it. Well, I think when you kill somebody, there's always consequences. Even if you, if you don't believe in an afterlife and a God or whatever, there, there's still a likelihood that someone you killed had someone that loves them that would want to kill you. And people that behave this way historically just end up dead really fast. Especially if you're living in this world of no consequences that you speak of. So now what I'd like to know is when exactly in any disaster scenario has there been no lasting consequences to actions like you're talking about? When exactly has that occurred? And so you're going to hear silence because they're thinking, well, uh, let's pick a, a situation that was kind of like that and there was there no lasting consequence. Hurricane Katrina, people didn't have anything. Who ran around just killing people and taking shit and, and got away with it? Well, that wasn't a long-term disaster. It's pretty long-term for the people living through it, long enough to starve, long enough to, to go without, long enough to get sick, long enough to be injured, long enough to be raped or hurt. I mean, th that, that, was, that happened, right, with Hurricane Katrina. What about, what about the Balkan Wars? Right, what, about, what about Sarajevo? Huh? What, what, what about that? The Bosnian War, Croatian Wars. Where like people were killing each other and stuff like that. Uh, who did well for themselves just shooting people and taking shit there? And what you find out is people either ganged up together and got away with it for a little while, but in the end, a lot of people that did stuff like that ended up dead. And they certainly faced consequences after it, and that's a war zone. So I'd like you to tell me when this has worked out well for somebody in history. When, when you've been able to just take shit and there's never been a point where things kind of get back together and the people that did that didn't have to answer for it. Even if one or two got away, where it worked out for people in general. Long silence. And then I would probably say, so if there was an ice storm and everything was shut down around here for 20 days, would you go out and start shooting people over that? Because if so, we should get you to see a mental health professional right away. Something's wrong with you. Or were you talking out of your ass? Well, no, that wouldn't be enough to do it. So you don't think that you might need something in those 21 days with no electricity and no food and no power? Well, you know you can't come here now because you've talked out of your ass to me and you think that you would shoot me for it, so I have to kill you when you show up at the end of my driveway, unless you can admit that you were talking out of your ass to me. So which one was it? Do, if, if you show up during an ice storm and you're in harm's way and you need help, do I blow your brains out or do I let you in and help you? And help you put your life back together and tell you next time you're on your own, grasshopper. Which one is it? See, this is the stupidest freaking, and I wanted to say it. You know, I did. I just don't say that word on the air very often, right? This is the stupidest freaking argument that's ever been made. And what it really is, is I'm a lazy lazy, lazy, irresponsible piece of crap as an adult. I'm not willing to step up and make sure that I take care of myself and my family if something goes wrong. I'm not willing to lift a freaking finger, but I'm a gun guy and I like guns, so I'm going to fall back on the spravado, talk out of my ass, bullshit. I'll just shoot you and take your stuff. The person that really would do that is either on their way in or eventually will be in a penitentiary right now even if nothing goes wrong. They're not going to do that. They're not going to do that at all. Because they're not the kind of person that will do that. They are the kind of person that's going to end up sooner or later wishing they were prepared for something. 
And when they ask you for help, you can tell them, I thought you were going to shoot people. I thought you were going to shoot people. Or when something goes and they don't ask for your help, but you know they get through, you go, well, how'd that work out for you? Well, why didn't you shoot the lady down the road and take her generator? Dumbass. This is... This is bullshit, is all it is. 99% of the people that make this statement would never do it, even in the worst situation. There is the 1%, but we know that. There's 1% scum in every walk of life. Again, what it is, is I, I do not wish to step up and be responsible for the safety of myself and my family because I don't think it's really necessary, so I'll talk out of my ass to cover my inadequacy. That's all that it is. And I would seriously tell anybody that said, well, I'll just take whatever I want. You talk like a man with a paper asshole. And I'd go right down that line with them. So why aren't you out stealing shit from people right now? So you, Because you think it's wrong? Or because you think you'll get caught? I mean, you, you come to my home and you've never stolen anything. Why haven't you stolen anything from me? See, put them in touch with their morality. And you just head that off. But again... You talk like a man with a paper asshole. That's all I got to say. Tell your buddy who told you this that Jack Spirico said he talks like a man with a paper asshole. Play this segment for him. Let's take another one. This one is uh, from someone across the pond, as they say, on uh, grains. And it's a little convoluted, not really a highly focused question, but I'll try to give some help to this gentleman. Hi, Jack. It's uh, Joseph from England. I was listening to the vegetarian podcast um, and the fact that she's now gone over to meat, um, and obviously it's ethical. A few things have got me a bit uh, confused, and I don't want to research it because I think you're just too knowledgeable, is basically the fact about grains <clears throat> and obviously how bad they are for you. Now, obviously, I've got three kids, and we eat a lot of cereal. So when you talk about grains, are we talking about cereals? And obviously, yeah, some contain a lot of sugar and some ain't good. But, you know, it's very confusing. So I just want to understand what the deal is with cereals. Simple subject, but, you know, in England, that's a main staple diet. It's every single morning. The children eat a lot of cereals. And listening to the podcast was exciting because I understand about the milk. We we always drink pasteurized but from the sound of things drinking um you know drinking non-pasture you know not non-pasteurized but basically yeah, you know, milk that hasn't been pasteurized is healthier for you i just want to give my children something better to eat in the morning you know i try the basic range because it's got less in it so uh what are your thoughts let me know about cereals thank you very much okay so Let's kind of start out with the fact that I can't go deep into I can do a whole show just on, and I have, on paleo nutrition and the, the detrimental damage that a diet high in carbohydrates of any kind have on the human health as a whole. Now, I'm also going to do a couple things. First of all, some people handle things that are bad for them better than others. My grandfather smoked two to three packs of Camel no-filter cigarettes a day, and he had black lung from working in the freaking coal mines, and he lived into his 90s, and he was in pretty good shape up till about 89, 90. Okay? 
he also drank like a fish, and I'm talking straight whiskey here, and uh, he did okay for himself. Does that mean it's a good idea for you to do? No. So some people have a higher tolerance to eat high carbohydrates and grains than others. But there are a lot of different Again, it's too too much detail to go in, and I, I'm going to suggest that maybe you listen to you know go, search the survivalpodcast.com for paleo, and and pick some episodes from there if you have this question, if you're new to the show, and and listen to some of those past episodes that talk about the nutritional requirements, um, and protein power uh, plan it would be another place to take a look and, and learn more about that. But th there's a fundamental reality: it's some of them have a lot of sugar. No, all of them are sugar. All carbohydrates are sugar, and it's no different than refined sugar other than it's more densely available as refined sugar. It, it takes less space to make an ounce than an ounce of bread. So an ounce of sugar uh, is a smaller space-taking up thing than an ounce of bread. But an ounce of bread and an ounce of sugar have the same amount of sugar in them. You want me to prove it? I'm a brewer slash distiller, right? I, I, I make alcohol, right? Okay, for fuel. So answer this for me. If I use 15 pounds of white sugar or 15 pounds of bread and I use two different mashes and I make a mash out of both and I ferment them and I then distill them into alcohol, which one produces more alcohol for me? 10, ounces of, 10 pounds of bread or 10 pounds of sugar? Or 15 pounds of bread. All just the same way. The answer is they produce the exact same amount. A pound of bread, calorically speaking, is the same as a pound of sugar. It's just, again, what does a pound of bread look like and what does a pound of sugar look like in spatial right, perception? So it's, it's pure sugar, and your body metabolizes it and uses it as sugar, and it, it ups your blood sugar. It causes spikes in your blood sugar. You do this your entire life, and eventually it starts to lead to insulin resistance, and that means you need more insulin to do the same job. You start to have um, toxic amino acids like homocysteine coursing through your body, damaging your arteries, and all of a sudden cholesterol starts sticking because it's trying to do what it does, which is actually repair damage. Without cholesterol, you'd be dead. Cholesterol becomes a problem when there's damage that it's fixing in arterial walls and it begins to build up on itself. And that's just one thing. There's also certain components to grains that are basically designed to make it where you shouldn't eat them. And I want you to think about it this way. If I handed you a handful of wheat, berries, or a handful of rye grain and said, eat this, and you tried to stick it in your mouth and eat it, it's not going to work, let alone it's on a stalk with a shaft in it. Okay? It's not for humans. You're not a bird. You're not a bird. A bird has a crop that it eats gravel and it eats grains and seeds and they go in there and it grinds them up and then it goes further down. They're, they're designed to process grains. You have a giant liver. You're made to process meat, buddy. You really are. Here, the thing I want to say is I'm not going to put somebody down that feeds their kids cereal. I grew up eating cereal all the time. I've learned that if I want optimum nutrition and optimum health, that my diet should be based on high-quality meats and low-carbohydrate vegetables. And then every once in a while, I'm going to eat a freaking piece of cake or a cookie. I ate a lemon cupcake mini muffin thing today because my sister-in-law brought it over when she came to get my wife to go shopping. 
She brought us a whole little container of them. I wish she had brought me one. I ate one. I'm done. Right? And, and that's not going to, you know, end the world for you. And if what you can afford to eat is mostly a grain-based diet, then eat organic whole grains and do the best you can with it and try to bring in lean meats and try to at least have one meal a day that's vegetable meat-based and excludes carbohydrate at least one meal a day. That, that'll go a long way. Sep if you can't afford to do it, separate the consumption. When you're going to eat fats and meats, don't eat carbohydrates. And when you're going to eat carbohydrates, don't eat fats. Uh, it, it, that that's one way to deal with it because then you'll burn the carbohydrate straight away. You'll reduce the total caloric input. So that's that's another way to look at this. And people all over the world do base their diets on grains. And that's why when people like me say it's not fit for human consumption, people go, that doesn't make sense. And we've been taught that, that grain is good for us. But I'm not going to tell a father who has to figure out how to put food on the table every day, you know, don't feed your kids cereals. But I would say reevaluate your dietary choices and see what you can afford to do and what does make sense for you. And do further research into this for yourself. Again, I've done a lot of podcasts in the past. If you just search the site for paleo, uh, you'll find a lot of information. You read Gary Collins' blog, The Primal Power Method, you'll learn a lot more. Pick up Lear Keith's book, The Vegetarian Myth. Read the book. And this is, this is a deep subject. It, 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 it requires, It requires a lot of knowledge, and it requires a lot of information. And the reason it requires that, this is kind of what we were talking about yesterday with Vin Armani. You have to deconstruct the narrative, because the narrative has been fed to you for so long, pun not intended, that it's very difficult for your mind to accept that something that so many people eat all the time is not nutritionally beneficial to them. But the, the Paleolithic record is crystal clear. The dawn of agriculture co coincides with a massive number of degenerative and autoimmune-based diseases and the shrinking of the height and the shrinking of the skeletal structure of the human species. That is, that is something you can't argue because it's literally preserved in rock in the fossil record. We can look at it and we can see it. So we know that it's real. And then we have people that have had tremendous results by going this way. Are there people who are very healthy that live on a grain-based diet? And the answer is yes. I believe that most, not all, most of them would be more healthy on a paleo-style, uh, high-protein, moderate-fat, low-carbohydrate diet. Eating living foods, real foods, and the highest quality meat they can get. Now, Do I always eat the highest quality meat that I can get? No, because it's expensive. So I produce meat, I eat meat, I hunt meat, all right? I buy some local meat, but occasionally I buy freaking beef from the store that I know damn well came from a CAFO, and I don't like it, but it's based on availability and cost at this time for me, okay? And I, I so, so I don't eat grains hardly at all. Like I said, that little muffin thing that I had this day was good. A couple weeks ago, our plated thing came with some thing you make croutons with, and that was pretty good, uh, but it was a small amount. You know, and that's how I consume grains now. This morning I had eggs and bacon for breakfast, you know, and I, I feel pretty damn good about that decision. But you gotta, you gotta make these choices for yourself. I will say that I think nutritionally, from an anthropological point of view, human beings 
are supposed to eat less carbohydrate than we do, definitely, and we are not designed to eat grains. I think that one can make a case for carbohydrate because there are so many carbohydrate-based fruits that you can pull off a tree and eat it and it tastes good and it works for humans. But you'll find they're very seasonal. They're not something you could eat year-round. And about the only place that you could live year-round and eat some level of carbohydrate every day is the tropics and subtropics. And the majority of human beings, from what we know, didn't develop there. They migrated there. And at the time of those migrations, there weren't near as many you know, uh, carbohydrate fruits and things like that because we had not yet got involved with selective breeding. Okay? So even there, and if you look at the, the diet of hunter-gatherer societies, it's usually fish, meat-based, uh, And, and it's also based on foraging. And if you look at the things that they can forage, you generally see that carbohydrate is not high among them. So even if the grains didn't have the other issues they do, you still have that. You'll also find that they always include fermented food in their diets, and they always make use of the things that we throw away that we would call awful. Bone, bone marrow, um, organ meats, things like that. And I struggle that with myself because I don't like liver, you know, and that's kind of the, the big organ meat. I like heart, but that's not the kind that's, you know, it's heart is really meat. It's a muscle. But what I found is that like, I don't like liver, but boy, man, you, you have an animal that you're going to make sausage out of and you, you, you almost freeze the, you cut it in cubes and almost freeze it. So it'll grind well and you grind it, you mix it that sausage. It makes sausage fantastic. And now, now we're consuming it, but I, I'm going to suggest you get Lier's book and read it so that you can learn more about what she's saying and do more research for yourself. And I think anybody out there that feels challenged by this, don't be afraid to get the information that I've based my decision on and make your own decision. What most people do is they, 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 they fall into confirmation perception bias and say, Jack has to be wrong. It can't possibly be that the most nutritious food in the world that I've been told whole wheat is bad for me. Again, I challenge you, stop reading what the food producers and the government say and go read what the, the fossil record, the paleolithic records say. Go read what the researchers who have done the research say and go read the results of those who have made the switch and then determine how much of that switch you want to make for yourself. And if you're happy and content living on, 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 on Wonder Bread, uh, and, 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 that's fine with me. You can do whatever you want. This is just my opinion. Let's take... I think I got uh, two more, and we'll be done for the day. Hey, Jack. This is Brad out in California. Uh, thank you for your show and all that you do. A while back, you uh, told us about uh, Ohio Prep and their jerry can. Uh, I decided to go ahead and give it a try. I ordered two of them, and uh, I'm pretty happy with them. Uh, they weigh exactly the same as the uh, real expensive Wavian cans you see on Amazon. Uh, they've got a really nice thick uh, paint coating inside and out. Uh, I was very happy with them. Uh, I laid them on their side uh, for 24 hours, no gas filled out. Um, they really seem like the real deal, made in Poland and all. Anywho, just thought I'd uh, pass that along to you. Thanks for the tip. Okay, to catch up new listeners a little bit, there's a, uh, a place called Ohio Prep and More, or Ohio Prep Supply, something like that, that uh, has a direct line on these NATO cans, like NATO Jerry gas cans, being made in Poland that are still being made for NATO use. Okay, And they're sending them here. And the loophole is, see, these are illegal 
for gas cans, to be sold as gas cans, because government, uh, supposedly they're not as safe, they, they, they're, not as, uh, they're not as environmentally friendly as the, the new cans that we have that spill gas everywhere when you try to use them. I'm just saying, and these are, these are probably the best way in the world to store gas. So the, the story was that these are as good as the old-style ones you used to be able to get. The, you, know, you can still get them on the surplus market, but they're hard to find. They're very expensive, and they, they're, they're cost-affordable, and they're being brand-new made, and they're made to the original specification. And you know, I had some concerns because you don't know. Anybody can say anything on the internet, put some pictures up of some guy in Poland beating the shit out of some steel and say, you know, this is this is just as good. But this is not the first person I've heard from that seems happy. Now, long term, I'm, you know, my biggest concern is that interior coating. Is it, you know, two years into it, it's gonna start flaking off or something like that. And if not, great. So I think we've had enough good feedback, and I've read the AR-15 forum thread on this and uh, the Zombie Squad forum on this, people that have had them for like a year. I think, in general, they are probably the best deal on the market today in a military-style jerry can, and now the bad news. They're out of stock, and I have no idea when they're going to be back in stock for the 20-liter, i.e. 5-gallon can. What they have in stock are two and a half gallon and like one and a quarter gallon versions of them. Uh, I think the two and a half is like 19 bucks, which I think is still a pretty good deal. I'm a big fan of the five gallon can, man. Maybe it's just because that's what I've always had. But I guess what I would say is when you're lifting a five gallon can and dumping it into your truck, it is kind of heavy. And lugging them around two and a half you know, gallons, half the weight half the volume. I'd kind of rather carry two, one in each hand, two and a half gallons than one five-gallon can if I'm going very far with it. But like all the vehicle racks and stuff like that are all set up for the five-gallon ones. So, you know, that's what's available. I might pick up a few because I, ha I have quite a few, so I haven't picked up any. And I was thinking today after I got this, another good report on them, I'll go get a few and, and, and give them my own run through. You can never have too much fuel stored. I might pick up a few of the two and a half gallon ones just to see kind of how I feel about that. Now, thanks to Stephen Harris, I don't ever sit there and hold my jerry can up and, and with my, you know, excuse the term, donkey dick attached to it and, and dump it in my truck and it quite, won't quite tip all the way up. I have a, a I call it the Harris hose and it's basically a fuel bulb for an outboard, uh, engine and the fuel line for an outboard engine. If you have, Some outboard engines, when you go to start them up for a boat, you take this fuel bulb and you squeeze it until it gets hard. And that gets the fuel running through the line to the engine. So when the engine starts running, it basically is creating a mechanical siphon and pulling the fuel from the can. But that bulb is what gets that fuel started. So what you do is you take one of these bulbs, you put a piece of hose on each end of it, and you stick one end into your can and one end into your fuel tank, and you start pumping it, and then you get a gravity siphon. Going and once that gravity siphon goes, you just it takes a while, but you don't have to stand there holding. You just walk away. And what I do is I throw the can up on top of the toolbox in the back of my truck, give it a nice elevation, throw the tube in one end, throw the tube in the gas can, make sure that siphon's running. And I go do something, and when I come back, the can's damn near empty. It'll be a little bit in the bottom. Then maybe you throw your nozzle on it and dump that last little bit out, throw it in the back of the truck. Next time I fill up the truck, I refill the gas can. That's how I rotate my fuel. And 
I use plastic cans for gasoline mostly because I only have a few jerry cans. But for my diesel truck, I have a bunch of the green ones that I, I that's what I did. Is you could buy when I was getting them from Tim Glantz, red and green. I standardize on red for gas and green for diesel. I know not everybody does that. That's what I did. So they have the smaller cans. You can check them out. I do have a link in today's show notes to the website. If anybody knows of an alternate supply of these same cans, I'd, I'd like to hear about it. And I'm sure the, 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 the company selling them is doing what they can to get them back in stock because apparently they've been selling like freaking crazy. And I guess when you bring a good product to the market, that's what happens. Uh, let's take one more. This question is on capturing collared doves. Yep, collared doves. Jack, do you have any tips, tricks, or suggestions for trapping Eurasian collared dove? The details are that I have a large quantity of collared dove in my Utah neighborhood. I would like to turn into dinner. These dove are considered invasive and do not have a season or hunting regulations that I'm aware of. The dove are slightly larger than morning dove and from what I've heard make for good eating. Shooting them with a firearm is not an option due to the close proximity of my neighbors. I'm not opposed to using an air rifle given the right opportunity and placement of the dove when the shot is taken. However, I prefer to trap the dove if possible since this seems to be my best option with my limitations. The dove primarily perch on rooftops during the day and are most active in the morning and evening before roosting. They typically eat in the morning and evenings as well. I placed a funnel trap on the roof of my home, four foot by four foot OSB for the floor, and a wire box made out of one inch chicken wire that's two feet tall by four by three feet wide with a one foot landing spot at the entrance. The funnel is tapered to the middle of the trap with black oil sunflower seeds on the outside as well as the inside and some in the funnel. I'm considering moving to cracked corn since there are cornfields about a quarter mile away from my home and suspect this is the primary diet. I'm also somewhat concerned that I may catch other birds on accident. However, considering the other species I've seen in my area, I'm not too concerned about this. Any advice or suggestions would be appreciated. Maybe Keith, uh, Chef Keith Snow has some recipes he could recommend. Thanks for all you do. I listen every day. Tyler. Let's start out with uh, what is a collared dove? It's also known as the Eurasian, Eurasian collared dove. Uh, they come from uh, subtropical regions of Asia, and uh, they are used in the pet trade. You can go to most pet stores and find them. If you go to a pet store and you see a little gray dove, a little black stripe doesn't quite go all the way around his neck, kind of goes halfway around the backside of his neck, a little bit smaller than a morning dove, that's your collared dove. And throughout the United States, they are viewed pretty much by most states and game departments, as far as I know, as being equivalent to a rock dove. What is a rock dove? It's a pigeon, right? Uh, basically, there's no limits on them. They're considered an invasive species and a nuisance. Uh, the the best estimate of how this happened in the United States is about 50 of them got away in the Bahamas. Uh, they started to reproduce, and they made their way to Florida, and now they're found in almost every state in the United States. I believe that's possible, and that's part of their genesis, but I don't believe it's their own. Anything that's kept as a pet as much as these things are, 
Uh, some get away, and when two get away that are of the opposite sex, they do what birds and bees do, and they make new ones. And then you just start off with more satellite breeding populations, and things go from there. So I think there's more than that to blame. All right. So how do we catch these things? As I was saying during the intro segment, I have this great uncle, uh, passed away a few years ago, um, World War II vet. I liked him. I liked him a lot. He was he was very good to me. He was my grandmother on my dad's side's younger brother. He was one of the youngest out of that group and uh, passed away in his, his mid-90s, I think. Uh, he uh, served in World War II in the Italian theater as a, uh, a sergeant, I think, was when I read his obituary. I didn't know that he had actually advanced that far in the military. Uh, he worked uh, for a full you know, retirement at a place called Cristiano Aluminum. Uh, and he lived one house up the road from my grandparents. And the family did not get along, e e even back then. And uh, he was his nickname, and meant maliciously, was Meet the Pete, meaning that if there was an animal on his property, he'd kill it and probably eat it if it was edible. Uh, and I think there was a little bit of truth to that, but he was also known to be a tightwad. And you have to understand, in my family, frugal is a given. When you say somebody's a tightwad, that means they're the person that could rub two nickels together until they turn into a dime. Okay? I mean, they just they make a penny scream. That's how tight that they are. And uh, I think there's a little bit of truth to that. But what he really was was he was entrepreneurial, which I think some of that DNA is in me, and he was able to make do with what he had. And he was able to op uh, recognize opportunities. So, you know, many years ago, there were these things called pigeon shoots, which is kind of like sporting clays with live birds. And what you do is you put the bird in a box, and the shooter stands 21 uh, yards back from the box, and then somebody pulls a string, and the bird flies out of the box. You shoot at the bird and try to kill it. And there was a lot of money in this. I don't even know if this is legal anymore anywhere back when i was a kid it was legal in pennsylvania in one other state and there was a huge pigeon shoot called the higgins pigeon shoot it was like people came from all over the world to compete in it but the big money was in private matches that would be sponsored by gun clubs and stuff and it would work like this let's say i'm a shooter and you're a shooter and i'm gonna say your name is tom so jack and tom are going to shoot my bird man is my uncle pete and your bird man is some guy we'll call steven i don't shoot at pete's birds you shoot at pete's birds and i shoot at steven's birds You see where this is going. Better birds, your opponent misses more often, then you're more likely to win. And there were a lot of money on these matches. Um, often upwards of $50 a bird shooting a 10-bird match. And sometimes bigger. I saw matches go three or $4,000 or more when I was a kid. And the bird man, your bird man, gets half the winnings if you win, and he shares half the loss if you lose. Right, and he's tender in birds, and you're tender. And I think actually you don't you don't get half. You get uh, you pay him for the birds, and then you split some portion thereof of the loss or the win. Um, and if his birds get away, what do pigeons do? They fly home. I know I'm not answering the question yet. I'm just trying to put in perspective the mentality of the man that came up with this method that I'm about to give you. It has to work. It has to be cheap. It has to be efficient. Okay, and. He was very good at this, and I think he put a lot of money in his pocket with his little pigeon coop and his birds. And I used to ask him about keeping birds myself before I decided I was going to leave, and he thought it was a fine idea, something he would hand down to me, and he taught me a lot about what he did. And I said, well, where do I get my birds? 
And to tell you how this guy is, first thing he wanted to do was sell me birds. <laughs> his own, his own grandnephew, right? Because if it was my nephew, he'd be like, let me get you set up, right? Uh, I'll come down and help you build one and I'll give you some birds and show you how. No, he wanted to sell them to me and, and not for any, not special price either. Again, the Taiwan thing. He said, but well, you could go trap your own. What do you mean and go trap it? Well, you just trap them. That's where I started. I trapped them, you know. So he shows me this box. And this box is a about a four foot by four foot framed box, like a cube, okay, uh, made with like one by material, so it's light. Four sides are covered with chicken wire. And the top is covered with a grid. The grid is made from like a heavy gauge wire, and there's about four inch squares where a bird can stand on the box, fold up its wings, and drop down into the box. But when it tries to get out and it flies, it can't get out. And you can just stick your hand through the, the, the grid, grab the bird, hold his wings in, pull him out, and leave the box right where it is. Okay. That's the trap. I've seen a lot of these funnel traps and one-way door traps and all, and they work. Nothing works like this, especially when you use it properly. So how do we use it properly? The first thing we want to do is we don't worry about what the bird's primary diet is because all birds eat black oil sunflower. It is candy. They will leave corn to eat black oil sunflower, especially doves. They love it. They love it. They, they're eating corn because there's so many of them and they eat something and it's there. Okay. Black oil sunflower is a fine bait. Corn, scratch mix, anything like that. Honestly, pigeons and doves love white proso millet. The cheapest bird seed you can get, they love the shit out of it. A mix of white millet and black sunflower, that's pigeon dove candy. But we want to find a place where they're already frequenting. Okay? That's where we want to trap them. A great place is usually under bridges and overpasses. Now, you have to be careful. Some states, this isn't legal. Even though it's legal to do it to them, it's not legal to put your trap in certain places. The best thing would be to find some private property like a gas station or something where these doves are hanging out and shitting all over the gas station. You probably have pigeons doing that, too. Because the owner or proprietor of that gas station is probably going to be like, you want to trap these things and get them out of here? Go ahead. What we're going to do is we're going to start feeding them. you got to tell them. It's going to take, take about a month before I really start making a net in the population. We're going to set up a trap or two upside down with the bottom up and the top down. And we're going to scatter seed all around it and in it. Why? Wildlife is, is, is suspicious of anything new. That's how they survive. But sooner or later, some dumbass will test it. And what you want the dumbass to do is he lands on it, he looks at it, he's not quite sure about it, but he goes in there and he eats and he comes out of it. Birds mimic each other. All of a sudden, they run out of all the seed that's not in the trap, and dumbass, who, who has a reputation for being a dumbass among his bird friends, well, he's going in and out of there, so it must be safe. So when they start cleaning out the feed in the trap, you come back and the, 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 all the feed's gone and the feed in your trap's gone, feed them one more time that way, and this time put the majority of the feed in the trap. Come back, the feed is gone, Flip the trap over and do the same thing. They've now been in and out of that box a bunch. They're no longer, that box is now something that's there with the free food. They land on the top of the box, they drop in, you got them. And now the more that are in there, the more go in there. And then when we go collect our birds, we flip the trap back over, bottom up, we do the same thing again, we feed them for a couple terms with the trap not set. And then we go flip it back over, and we do that until we take as many birds as we want. That works beautiful with anything. 
it's completely harmless. If you catch any non-target species, release them. You know, morning doves. Morning doves are federal migratory game birds, as are white-winged doves. And it's like a hundred dollars a piece for the fine. 25 years ago, I don't even know what it is now. But I had a friend about 25 years ago that got nailed hunting with a license in season with 16 morning doves with a limit of 12. And his fine was $400, $100 a bird. Not something you want to mess around with. So release them. But if you're doing it on private property, you're in a lot of states you have to have a tag with your name and contact information. And there's a rule that even when you're trapping things that are okay to trap, the trap has to be checked every 24 hours, 48 hours, whatever. You follow those rules, and every time you, you go, you update your tag with the last date. So you put a new tag or you cross the date out and put a new date on it. Uh, and that way that if, it, if someone like the rabbit sheriff or somebody comes by and, uh, and sees the, the thing and looks at it, they can contact you. They can see the last time you checked it. They know it's being maintained. And when it's not set, it's probably not an issue. If you're doing it behind somebody's, you know, uh, gas station or something like that. And that's usually a great place. There's a lot of grit around those places. So the birds are attracted to them just because there's, there's paved road, but there's unpaved areas like that, that grit, usually wherever that is, there's standing water uh, whenever it rains, so those birds start to see that as a resource for water and grit. Overpasses and things like that are great, but you, I know in Texas it's illegal. Now, I don't know if anybody's going to care, uh, but it's, it's, it, you can't leave a trap on public property, which an, a, a, an easement of the road is. So, again, you find Home Depots and Lowe's, a little harder to talk to the manager, but usually the bat, somewhere around those, usually there's birds hanging out. Uh, a lot of times they're going in there and stealing grass seed and stuff like that out of the garden center. Uh, so a mom-and-pop version of that, like a hardware store, something that sells grass seed, gravel park, if there's a gravel parking lot and you see birds around it, that's a good location. Um, that is the uh, meet-the-peat method of uh, gaining uh, birds either for, for, uh, for your pigeon operation or for consumption as well. I, I, I kick around the idea, and probably at some point will do pigeons here in addition to my quail, uh, with a fly and ability to let them out, and that's probably how I'll acquire my birds initially, as feral birds, because their genetics are very, very strong for survivability. And they're also good foragers, or they'd be dead. Right. So, hey, if you like what you learned today and you like the way I handled these calls, uh, please uh, consider supporting us when you do your Amazon shopping. Just go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, to see my Amazon reviews. And whenever you shop from there, you help support the Survival Podcast. Today's item of the day I've talked about before, but it's never been an item of the day. It's GS Plant Foods Liquid Kelp Fertilizer. This stuff is the bomb, and a little goes a long way. You dilute it at one to two ounces per gallon. I usually use two ounces per gallon when I'm putting it on the soil, and I do that about three times a season, and I use about an ounce per gallon. Uh, I'm sorry, a half ounce. It's one ounce to a half ounce to one ounce to the gallon. I use a half ounce to the gallon when I'm using it as a foliar feed when I spray it on my plants. And when I do that, I use Garrett juice plus with this added to it. And, man, it makes plants grow. It really does. Uh, there's so much that liquid kelp does. It has a decent NPK uh, profile. It's like 2% nitrogen and 5% potassium. It only has a quarter percent phosphorus. But all of that is immediately absorbable by your plants, especially as a foliar feed. Again, when we're spraying it on the plants. And the Garrett Juice has its own thing that it does. The two together, to me, are dynamite. Um, but the big thing is there's over 70 minerals in liquid kelp. They're also highly bioavailable to your plants. They may be in your soil, but they may not be there. The exudates may not be going yet or what have you at the time of the season. So what I do is 
when, at the beginning of the season when I plant, I do a soil drench with liquid kelp and garret juice. And then the mid-season I do it, and then toward the end of the season I do it again. About every two weeks, I spray the plants with the garret juice and the liquid kelp. And about once a month, so every other spray, I spray it with the garret juice, liquid kelp, and garlic pepper tea as a, as a pesticide or a pest preventative that's systemic that I give you a link to where to learn how to make it on Howard Garrett's website today. Uh, and, and I use those, and I've, I've talked about my full regime before with some supplemental iron and, 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 and calcium and stuff like that. But my core really is this GS Plant Food Liquid Kelp, Garrett Juice Plus, and Dr. Earth 444 All-Purpose Fertilizer. I give links to all of that stuff today. If you want to grow a garden this year that blows you away with productivity, follow that regimen. You can look up my other stuff if you want to. Um, and you can, you know, add some of these other things and some, uh, you know, some rock minerals and lava sand and green sand and stuff like that. And those are all great things. But this core alone will take you a long way. And it, it just ain't the same without the liquid kelp. Liquid kelp is highly sustainable. They basically harvest it from the ocean. They cut it and it just grows back. It's one of the most sustain sustainable plant products on the planet. It's not expensive. Um, you can get a 16-ounce bottle. It'll make you 16 to 32 gallons of, of uh, fertilizer. And when you're spraying it on plants, you don't need to make up that much. You make up like a half gallon, you know, depending on the size of your garden. I give a link to a couple of my uh, my go-to sprayers as well in this write-up. GS Plant Foods Liquid Kelp Fertilizer. It's the time of year to be getting started with your gardening and stuff like that. Uh, and this fertility regime is In all the years, it's the best that I've found. Again, GS Plant Foods. And you can find it at tspaz.com. You can find all my reviews at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. And whenever you use that, you are helping to support the Survival Podcast. All right. So what's up for the song of the day today? It is 1968. Uh, and today's song is called Crossroads by Cream. And for those of you that don't know... Eric Clapton got his start in Cream, and he's the one just playing the amazing guitar in this. Cream was one of the first, it may even be considered the first supergroup uh, in, in rock and roll history. Um, also part of the British invasion of the Kinks and the Stones and the Beatles. And uh, this song is actually not one of my favorite songs, but I, I stand in awe at the guitar in this song. But the song itself is a good song for 1968. We talked about things like the assassination of Martin Luther King today, civil rights movement, riots, government conspiracies, and a nation on some levels turning itself apart at a crossroads. And it's also because the song comes from two different songs that are put together, and one of the songs is about a blues player who makes a deal with the devil to be able to play guitar the way that he does. And it's, it's about that moment that we all have eventually in our lives where we have to make a decision. Do we be like the idiot prepper guy that called in a day and really think, well, I'll just take other's stuff, or I'll compromise my morals and my integrity to have what I want, or will I do the hard work that's necessary to acquire it the right way? That crossroads. And if we're good parents, we're leading our children to a point when they reach that point of decision, they're going to make the right choice. And if we're living the right way, then we make our ability to make that right choice easier. See, I think that's part of prepping. By, by not having the attitude of, I'll just, I'll just work it out when I get there. I won't be a responsible adult. When we do have a crossroad decision to make, instead of deciding, well, I'll take something from someone else, we can actually make a decision to help our neighbors and do something for somebody else and give to somebody else. Typifies the time, 
it typifies the prepping attitude. And when you realize there's only three people making all this music, it's kind of incredible. And again, the guitar music in it, I stand in awe at how a man can play a guitar like this. Again, Cream Crossroads. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
sinking down. Thank Eric Clatter, please. Bubble.